know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. The gang is all here tonight and uh, we are ready for another terrific program where we talk to you about the paranormal as we do each and every Saturday night. I have a little bit of a cold so I, I sound way more sexier than I really am. It's my Barry White voice, baby. So, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to turn down the lights and start a fire and have your sweetie sit next to you on the couch i'll uh i'll have my nice toe i sound it's almost like what Moni sounds like all the time <laughs> oh god <laughs> please help us all well you've been you've been blessed with a with a great voice so the only problem is that most of the time when you're using it it's yelling at people true more, <laughs> more than <laughs> anything else but i don't think you'll yell at tonight's guest too much i think you guys are gonna have a lot to talk about because tonight we're gonna be joined by mac maloney he's the author of the new book ufos in wartime i talked with him before he was a guest of ours on uh, 30 odd minutes and uh he put out this book it's his uh, first nonfiction book i believe which is very interesting we're going to talk to him about how his fiction career led into the creation of this book and i'm going to show it on the cameras on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. So if you want to check out what's going on in the Spooky Studio during the course of the show, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, or you can jump into the chat room there as well. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions and a lot of stuff popping up in the chat room during the course of the night. And you can always call in at any time as well, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420, as we talk about UFOs and wartime with our guest, Mac Maloney. And also a little bit later on, we're going to be joined for a few minutes by Peter Robbins, our friend and UFO researcher, uh, who is has a, has a couple of events coming up that he's going to be speaking at. But I also want to have him talk with Mac a little bit uh, about the Bentwaters cage, which is, which is, of course, Peter's specialty. Yes. So it should be fun talking about that a little bit later on. We almost had a UFO incident on the way in, Boney. <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah, as we were driving here from Wareham, coming up 195, we saw a very low shooting star. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this thing actually made Earth impact. And uh, it was it's the lowest one that I've ever seen. You said that we've actually been passing through uh, a meteor yeah, shower. Yeah, there was a meteor shower that uh, we passed through a couple of days ago. There was also a couple of near-Earth uh, asteroids that came by between the uh, Earth and the moon this week, too, uh, yesterday and today. Well, if you if anybody out there had any sightings uh, tonight that you want to report to us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com is our email. You can let us know uh, anytime. Matt Costa, how about yourself? You see anything coming in on your way in? No, I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> He's like, no, I wasn't. I had my eyes closed yeah. the whole time I was driving. All right. Well, somebody who has been paying attention is Mac Maloney, and he's joining us on the line right now to talk about his new book, UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. And uh, let me give you Mac's intro here because he's had a pretty interesting uh, background. He grew up in the Dorchester section of Boston and was taught to read and write by the nuns at St. Anne's School. So, you know, automatically there you know that the back of his hands are still red. Yeah. From learning, His father was a veteran of World War II, and he used to read military books all the time. 
As a child, Mac started reading them too, along with a lot of science fiction. He received a BS in journalism, and uh, anybody can tell you that if you work in journalism, it's all BS, <laughs> and a graduate degree in filmmaking from Emerson College. He was a sports reporter for two years after college before joining corporate America as a publicist for General Electric Company. Mac started writing books in 1984 and has been doing it full-time since 1987, penning over 30 books. And he joins us now on the line. Good evening, Mac. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? How are you doing? Uh, and I, I can say that, you know, we put the BS in journalism because being one myself, you know, I know that to be true. We we, were, we had fun talking about some uh, some sports reporter memories the other day. Yep, that's right. Yeah, we were both, um, I was a sports reporter, oh man, more than 20 years ago. And I can tell you that a lot of those guys are still around and uh, a lot of them are still just as grouchy as they were back then. Still getting all the free meals from the Red Sox. and the Oh, Celtics. I think I think the Red Sox charge $9 now for the pregame meal. Oh, you're kidding me. And I think the Celtics, I think they want like a $5 donation. Oh, that's awful. Patriots are still free, though. So. Well, that's good. Until I just said that. Now next <laughs> season we'll be paying. If they win the Super Bowl, I'm sure we'll be paying. Yeah. So you come from a background now of writing a lot of uh, fiction works. Uh, you have the Wingman series, Chopper Ops, Starhawk, Superhawks. So you become known uh, for a lot of these titles. What made you make the decision to write a nonfiction book about UFOs? Well, it just came up um, in a. Uh, I was having lunch with my editor um, one day, and I had always been a, a, a fan of uh, UFOs. I was uh, a fan of UFO books. I used to read UFO books all the time as a kid, and also, as you mentioned earlier, you know uh, there was a lot of military books around my house because my father was into that a lot. So somehow or other, the two. Uh, the two ideas kind of crossed that um, UFOs just seem to show up a lot during times of war or as we're getting ready to go to war. And I just mentioned this to my editor once, and he said, uh, you know, that might make an interesting book, but it would have to be a nonfiction book. So we just kind of took it from there. That was about three years ago, and um, uh, the book's been out for about a month now. And I, I didn't, I mean, I knew I'd heard a lot of these stories, especially, you know, doing Spooky South Coast Now. We just celebrated our, our uh, sixth anniversary uh, just two days ago. So I've been talking with Matt Moniz about UFOs for a long time, and I knew that, you know, it wasn't uncommon for, for there to be military associations with UFOs. But after reading this book, I'm just amazed at not only the wealth of reports that happen, but the fact that they're happening from all sides, no matter what the conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, at first, when, when I first had the idea, I thought, well, you know, why would this be? Because it just seemed like, you know, I would, I would, like I said, I would read UFO books, and a lot of them seemed to do with, have to do with the military or right before a war started or during war. And I, I was thinking, especially in the 20th century, did is it because, you know, once planes were brought into, you know, wartime and, and the you know, World War One, obviously, and is it that there were more people up there flying around and they're seeing more of these things, or are there more people on the ground looking up in the air? I, you know, I couldn't really figure out why that would happen, but um, the more I get into it, and as you said, there's just such a wealth of evidence, it just seems to me that whatever UFOs are, they, they, are, they, they are attracted to watching us, keeping an eye on us when, when we're at war. It's almost as if they were observing us or are watching, you know, history as it's being made, let's say. So, um, I don't know, I found it more fascinating um, as the research went on. Um, not a lot of answers, but just kind of fascinating in the evidence itself. Well, I, I definitely agree with you that they seem to be watching over us. Uh, Moniz, that's amateur hour. Sorry. <laughs> Set phasers to stun. Uh, but... Uh, you, you, you're definitely right when you say that there's a pattern of them seeming to observe what goes on. But as I was reading the book and as I'm reading all these accounts, I'm starting to wonder if maybe they're also not thinking, 
if ever we wanted to get a really good up close and personal look at what these militaries are doing, let's do it during war because they're always just going to think we're the other side. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I, I agree with you. Um, I, what I really started to believe early in the research and then by the time I was through, I, I think I'm really coming around to this uh, line of thinking. I'm not the first one to come up with this, but I, I really think that, that there's a good chance that there are uh, people from our future who have come back to, uh, as I said before, see history being made. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, kind of, I don't want to say evidence, but you know, there's, there's a lot of things that kind of point towards that and, and away from the kind of E.T. Uh, scenario, though, you know, who knows, but it just seems to me that, and I've said this uh, many times, is that if you have a um, a vehicle, some kind of an aerial vehicle, as reported, let's say, during World War II uh, with the Foo Fighters, um, which is just, you know, fantastic looking and has all these fantastic capabilities, then why would you choose to, you know, ride 100 feet off the wing of a Lancaster bomber as it's bombing Berlin in the middle of the night, uh, you know, with anti-aircraft fire and night fighters and so on and so forth. Why would you do that if not just to see, as I say, history being made? So, I don't know. I'm, I'm coming around to this whole kind of time travelers theory. You know, I, I've always liked that theory too myself, especially when you hear about the, you know, the ancient astronauts and you hear about these ships that visited people in the early days of history mm-hmm. and kind of lent a guiding hand then. Mm-hmm. So I've always hoped that it's just us you know, perpetuating, you know, not to sound all Disney-ish, but the, the circle of life and to make sure that uh, we're, we're helping out the past. But at the same time, uh, you would think that wartime, if, if any time they felt like they needed to intervene, it would be during a, a time of war or conflict. Well, that's true. But, you know, someone said to me the other day, um, well, what if, um, because there were, there were very, very few instances of UFOs actually interfering in wartime, though we do have, I think, four or five series in the book where, UFOs kind of take, let's say, offensive action. But someone said the other day, well, what, have, what would have happened if the Nazis, if it looked like they were going to win the war? Would they have intervened then, meaning the UFOs, you know? So uh, who knows? You know, it just seems like there might be one way of looking at it, that our history is unfolding, you know, quote-unquote, just as it should. And um, But there are times where it does look like they, they kind of just kind of, you know, um, take some action that just turns it just a little bit, uh, in the direction of, well, let, let me put it this way. If they are from our future, that means that we have a future, which is kind of an optimistic way of looking at it. But, sure. uh, you know, like I say, it, it, it's, it's all really one big puzzle when we're just trying to get get it together a piece at a time. But um, uh, the, the time travel theory, I like it, and I, I guess a lot of other people like it too. Well, in reading the book, one of the things that I realized is, you know, I, I've always heard, we've heard of the Foo Fighters, you know, these World War II UFO sightings. And I've even heard a little bit about some stuff uh, in World War One. But you bring it all the way back, uh, you know, to, uh, to to Emperor Constantine in those times. I mean, it, it, this has been going on for, for many, many, many years. Alexander the Great. Yeah. Even I, before that. I think it's really been going on throughout human history, you know. Um, you know, we... The, Kind of begin the book with the story about Alexander the Great, where he was, and um, he was on one of his campaigns. Um, I believe he was in eastern Persia, and he was going to uh, cross this uh, strategic river. And these um, flying, as they described them, flying shields showed up and started buzzing his army to the point where his cavalry and his war elephants wouldn't go across uh, the river. And um, then, about two years later, he was laying siege to a, a city uh, called Tyre, which is in 
uh, modern-day Lebanon is a city that's out in a harbor, and um, his troops were building causeways out to this city to attack it. And as soon as they had finished these causeways, the shields showed up again, and as the story goes, um, sh- uh, shot something at the walls of the city, breaking them down and allowing Alexander's troops to go in. So this, this is an example of where they, the UFOs actually had a hand in you know, these um, campaigns. And, and one, it seems like they didn't want him to do something, and then the other, they were helping him do something. So, But uh, that's just one of many stories. I mean, you know, UFOs are mentioned in the Bible and so on. And sure. uh, um, So I, I just think they've been around as long as we've been around. Well, you mentioned the Bible. We've talked on this show in the past about speculation that the Star of Bethlehem might have actually been a UFO, and that would kind of fit into, in my opinion, that future human theory of, you know, that if ever there was a moment they wanted to go back and witness, I would think it would be that one. That would be it, sure. And um, then the story we also have um, in 300 uh, AD, where you had mentioned before Constantine I was uh, about to have a battle right outside of Rome, and whoever was going to, whoever won it was going to be the next emperor of Rome, and the day before, he and his troops saw a UFO uh, that was shaped like a cross, and uh, the um, people, the seers who were traveling with his army, told him that this was a sign uh, uh, from above, let's say, and he came to believe that if his troops drew crosses on their shields, that they would win the battle. So he ordered them to do that, and, and they did, and even though they were the underdogs, they won the battle the next day, and one of the first things he did was make christianity the official religion of rome so i mean it sounds strange but you know there's you know there's a not a good chance but there is a possibility that the reason that christianity is such a widespread religion these days is you know uh, might be linked back to a ufo sighting yeah perhaps we are we already have our uh, first question from the chat room low battery dave says that if uh, if they are indeed future humans though uh, if there was a crash wouldn't they want to do something to be able to come back and cover that up uh, well maybe they have that's, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's um, um, let's let's put it this way, and I've said this before: is let's say that um, a UFO lands on the White House lawn on July first, two thousand eighteen. Um, that means that they they know that date is the date that UFOs will be exposed as time travelers. Well, they can do anything up to that date uh, because they know the history that we don't. So. You know, who knows? This, this, if, if they have the ability to travel in time or to travel in these unbelievable um, aerial vehicles that we see them in, they have the ability to do a lot of things. And I think maybe covering up a crash or um, covering up prior contact or something, you know, is well within their uh, capabilities. Well, I think the, the from reading the book, it seems like the modern idea of UFOs in wartime probably comes about in the early 1900s. And it, there was definitely a couple of flaps of strange sightings that don't really fit anything that was going on at the time. I mean, we're talking about the early days of flight. And, you know, when, when Wilbur and Orville were just barely able to, you know, ride that bicycle fast enough to get the uh, the takeoff going. Mm-hmm. And and from what you've been reporting here in, in the book, it seems like there were some pretty fascinating airships that were in the air not long after that. Right. In um, 1909, there was a uh, flap in England that they uh, they came to be known as the scare ships, and this is one of my favorite chapters in the book. Basically, what happened was um, in April of 1909. Now, this is five years before World War II began. People in the eastern part of uh, England started seeing these huge um, objects going over. Uh, they looked like uh, zeppelins. They were about the size of zeppelins, but they were uh, clocked. Some of them at going around 250 miles an hour, flying against the wind. 
uh, they were only seen at night, and they had these huge searchlights on the bottom of them shining down on the ground below. And uh, even though the Germans, the Germans actually had just invented the Zeppelin, they had no war Zeppelins, and they had no Zeppelins that could make the 700-mile round trip from Germany to England and certainly not be able to do it at night. So exactly what these airships were, uh, no one ever found out, but they were seen for uh, almost the entire year of, of 1909. Um, there were more than one of them because people would see, sometimes see two of uh, three of them at a time. They were uh, reported in different parts of the U.K. At, at the same time. They were reported as far, far away as Northern Ireland. And actually, there was an airship scare in the United States in the late 1800s. Um, so, uh, but no one ever figured out exactly what the, what the scare ships were. It was almost as if, and we have a couple other examples in the book of this, where people were seeing a technology that was a little bit ahead of its time. Um, if these things were seen over England five or six years later, then, you know, they would have been Zeppelins. But there was, it was impossible for these things to be Zeppelins in 1909. And, and I think that's probably what got people, uh, you know, staring more at the skies, uh, when you have something that's that widespread publicly, you know everybody wants to be the next person to see it, or to to be the first person to see the next flap. Uh, well, that's right. You know, and, and even right before, um, well, when World War Two started, and I mean World War One started in 1914, there's another story in there where um, when Zeppelins did start bombing uh, the UK, uh, the British had yet to come up with um, uh, an idea of how to. Uh, shoot down Zeppelins. They eventually came around to incendiary bullets, which if you shoot the Zeppelin, it would just blow it out of the sky. But before they had come up, uh, up upon that idea, what they used to do is they used to send airplanes up, unarmed airplanes up over London, over the major cities, just to see if Zeppelins were coming. It was almost like an early warning system, a crude early warning system. And one of them, 1914, a guy was up there and he saw this um, incredible um, cigar-shaped object up very close uh, came right up to it. He thought it was just another kind of a Zeppelin, and um, uh, he shot at it. He had a pistol with him, and he shot at it, and it took off at tremendous speed. But uh, we have kind of uh, determined that that was probably the first time anyone has shot at a UFO uh, while in flight. But these things were seen a lot over um, over England right in the run-up to World War One. And as you say, all of a sudden you have lots of people looking up in the sky, so that means you're going to have more witnesses to things like this. And I think that... Uh at least back then, there wasn't the stigma attached. I would, I would assume, with uh, having a UFO sighting like what's happened now, and I, you know, I'm sure a lot of that is part of, you know, the disinformation aspect of things, uh, you know, in the later part of the 20th century. But back then, uh, I'm sure that nobody's credibility was called into question if they reported these things. Well, it was a little more innocent back then. But you know, it's funny you say that because the person who, first person who saw a scare ship in 1909 in England was a um, was a constable. And as the media got a hold of it in England, you know, they, they have a real kind of rabid tabloid mentality. Um, media, uh, um, still, they have, it's like that today, but it was like that back then as well. And um, after the, 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 the story kind of broke, people went to his boss, the, uh, the, the chief of police in this Peterborough, Peterborough um, England, where it first all started, and, and his boss actually... Uh, uh, disavowed any uh, comment that the constable had made, and they made up these stories about what he had actually seen was a Chinese kite that was flying with candles attached to it, and any noise that was associated with it, uh, you know, with some um, motor running in a bakery or something. They came up with these cr- this crazy story to kind of, uh, you know, disavow what he had said. So uh, the innocence stopped um, 
pretty quickly there as far as the uh, scare ships were concerned. And then, as you say, by the time we get to the late 40s and the 50s, a definite disinformation campaign by the CIA to, uh, you know, make sure that anyone who reports UFO is, is ridiculed, and that's in, still, still in place today. You know, it seems like even back then they were quick to blame the Chinese kites and the Chinese lanterns and right. <laughs> all these things that we still blame them on today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, right. Well, one of the questions that came up in the chat room uh, from our friend Chops was about the uh, Tunguska incident. In, am I saying that right, Moniz? Yeah. In, in, uh, in the Soviet Union. And uh, do you have any thoughts on, on that incident? Yeah, the, we don't have anything in the book about it, but it was funny. I was just seeing, watching something, I think, on the Discovery Channel two days ago about that. And um, I don't know. You know, I mean, what, what could that have been, the, the, the destruction that happened out there just went for, you know, hundreds of miles. It's... Um, and 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 I know some people think that it was some kind of a uh, a, a comet or or, or something yeah. asteroid hitting the Earth. But you know, there's 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 nothing right right at the ground zero. They say the the tree that was the only place the trees were still standing. So it looked like some kind of an airburst situation. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, that's that's really a huge mystery. All I can think of is what if something like that happened today? People would just you know freak out. Oh. But uh, just the fact that it happened in one of the most remote part of remote parts of this planet is also adds to the mystery. Well, the part that really makes it mysterious is that it made three separate turns before it finally exploded. Yeah, people saw it, yeah, maneuvering. Uh, I don't know. I, you think that they would, you know, I, I mean, I think that, that you could probably go back to that area and and, uh, and do something and look for almost, uh, almost have like an archaeological dig or something. Well, they've already been doing it. There's oh, been sorry. several. There's been several uh, research groups that have gone out there, and they've found these weird metallic little spheres or spheroids that uh, they have no idea how the hell they got there or what that what they're really made of. Or, or let's put it this way, their composition is not uh, a means in which we would naturally be able to produce today. Man, that's strange. The whole thing is a really strange story. And it wasn't like there was anything going on in Russia in 1908 that UFOs would be interested in, not not a first revolution or anything. Well, no. most people <laughs> don't realize that it was originally seen to, over England. It came in from the north, and it, it crossed over England, headed through Europe, and then crossed as the earth was turning or it was going around. It, it passed over into the Siberian area. And then made a couple of different turns. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't just seen just in Tunguska. It was watched across Europe. Well, but, I mean, at the same time, too, you're in the, the midst of that first Russian revolution. So, yeah, well, you know, there was mm-hmm. definitely something there to check out if they were interested. All right. Well, uh, as, as we moved into to World War One, and this I found fascinating because you're having World War One fighter pilots on both sides that are seeing these craft that are well beyond anything that they're flying. And... And you would think that's, you know, being the first real air war, uh, that they would have the most state-of-the-art equipment that they were flying around up there. And some of these things that they were seeing, just they're beyond what we could even do today. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I mean, see, that's it's another instance where, um, you know, in the case of the scare ships and also uh, the Scandinavian ghost flies in 1934 and also the ghost rockets in 1946, you have these instances where what people are seeing are not your typical UFOs, but there's... It just seems to be these things that are almost earthly technology, but 5, 10, 15 years ahead of its time. But then on the other hand, you have, um, you know, there were, there were sightings in World War I over the trenches. Uh, there's the story of the uh, Angels of Mons, which is an, an odd story. There's the story of the, uh, 
the sighting at Fatima, which is usually given a religious connotation. But if you if you subtract the religious angle to uh, Fatima, I mean, what you have is on on one day, sixty thousand people out in the field saw a, a disc that was spinning and 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 throwing off sparks and moving all over the sky, and um, the people thought it was the sun, and 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 it came so close to some people on the ground that it. Uh, it, had, it dried their clothes. It had rained earlier that day. I mean, the whole Fatima story is just fascinating. Like I say, if you if you take the religious angle out of it, it could be one of the largest uh, sightings of a UFO in history. So a lot of strange things ha- were happening from the beginning of the 20th century on. These things really started to ramp up, no doubt about it. I mean, we just had a guest on uh, last week. Uh, we were joined by Tom Fusco, and he was talking about you know taking the religion aspect out of a lot of things. And he also talked about that sighting. Uh, in his book, where he said, you know, if it wasn't a religious event, if it didn't have that connotation to it, it, it might be the most important UFO sighting of all time. And I think that so many of these miraculous events that have happened over time, and, and we talked about UFOs being in the Bible, but you can almost put, you know, the, the, the spaceman or the future human theory to the test when talking about a lot of these religious experiences for people. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the, the Fatima story, um, which was basically three kids in a field um, who uh, had this visitation first from quote unquote an angel who told them that they were going to have this major visitation, and then later on this happens where they see this you know beautiful woman who you know everyone just assumed is, was the Blessed Virgin Mary from the uh, uh, from the Catholic religion, and uh, and she would appear to these three kids only to the kids um, on the same day. Uh, of the month for about six months. At the time, Portugal was in World War One, but uh, they they went in kicking and screaming. Let's put it that way. A lot of uh, a lot of Portuguese soldiers were killed on the front, and and it kind of put this uh, negative aspect throughout all of Portugal um, as far as war was concerned. Even though the Portuguese government was anti-religion, the the, the people in Portugal were very religious. So um, you know, these kids are having this visitation on a regular bases and more and more people are coming to this field where they're having this uh, visitation and 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 I think it it went from like 100 people to 1000 people in the following month there was 10,000 people and then finally the, the the final one we were just talking about there was like 60,000 people there there were newspaper reporters there were there were doctors there were intellectuals there and there's even pictures of this happening and and as as you said you're that guess you're talking about if you can subtract the religious element from this it's a fantastic sighting and it's it's one that you know you've got uh, so many people that would swear by what they saw as long as long as you allow them to say that it was a miraculous sighting, you get away with it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, you make the same uh, connection with say like uh, what happened in Mijigori. Now, yeah. what happened in that country afterwards? A, a, a heavy duty ethnic cleansing war. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Right. And there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels to Fatima and Medjugorje as well. You know, uh, three kids, and they're the only mm-hmm. ones who, you know, claim to see it, and, and so on. And, and and the country is in the middle of religion of political turmoil. Um, there's, I saw a film once of those three kids from Medjugorje, and, and the strange thing about it is, I think that they would have this uh, visitation in in a, in a little chapel, and there'd be a lot of people around them. But the, all three kids, at least in this film just hit their knees at the exact same mm-hmm. time. And, and I remember watching saying, but you, you couldn't, if this was fake, you couldn't co- coordinate that mm-hmm. perfectly like that. So in my mind, it just seemed like, well, they must be seeing something. And it must have been the same thing in Fatima, too. 
Well, I, I think, uh, you know, my plan was kind of to attack a lot of these sightings in a chronological fashion tonight, but I think we're going to kind of skip around uh, a lot, quite a bit, because some different things are, are popping up in the chat room, and I'm sure some people will call in, uh, and you can call in to talk to Mac Maloney, our guest tonight, at 508-996-0500, And uh, like I said, uh, coming up at the beginning of the second hour, we're going to be joined for a few minutes by Peter Robbins to talk about a couple of uh, events he has coming up. But uh, while we have him on the phone, Mac, I, w- I want you guys to talk a little bit about both the Bentwaters case, which is... Uh, one of it's Peter's bread and butter. It's it's the case that he spent most of his years researching. And uh, then I also want to talk a little bit then about the Roswell case too, because I think you guys have some different perspectives on the Roswell case. So I want to get into all that more. But one of the questions that just popped up in the chat room, moving a little bit more toward the World War II era, is somebody had a question about the Battle of Los Angeles and what you think about uh, that whole phenomenon, because that's a, another major sighting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we went to this um, in really uh, good detail in the book, and, and I'll just give you the short version for anyone who doesn't know what happened. Um, in February 24th of 1942, um, just a little while after Pearl Harbor happened, um, the Navy had thought that uh, a report of the Naval Intelligence said that Los Angeles was going to be bombed that night by, by the Japanese. And now, you got to remember, at, at, at that time, L.A. had about... Uh, two million people, but they also had a lot of defense plants there. So they had a lot of anti-aircraft guns around the defense plants and a lot of military and civil defense people in the city. So, um, you know, when the naval intelligence said that, you know, it looks like there's some kind of a bombing raid uh, coming, people took it seriously. So um, all the aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft guns were manned that night, and the, and the city was, let's say, on high alert. The day before, a Japanese submarine had surfaced um, off a city about 90 miles north of Los Angeles and had shelled an oil refinery. And there were people back then who thought that the Japanese were physically going to invade the West Coast of America. So we're in the middle of this real war jitters situation. So around 2 o'clock uh, that night or early that morning, uh, these things uh, start showing up on radar. Uh, lots of objects coming in in Chevron, in Chevron formations, coming in over the ocean and over, uh, over Los Angeles itself. So... Uh, they ordered the anti-aircraft batteries to open up, and for about the next two hours, there was this quote-unquote battle where there was uh, so much ordnance uh, shot up into the sky that uh, the expended ordnance that fell back to the ground killed six people on the ground, did a lot of major property damage. Um, air raid sirens went off, of course, and they figured that at least a million people saw these things overhead. Uh, there was a very famous picture that we have in the book that we used uh, thanks to the Los Angeles Times, who owns it, uh, of a of a flying saucer caught in a bunch of searchlights and being fired on by anti-aircraft guns. There's, if you look at the picture, there's, it, it looks like nothing other than a, a flying saucer. And uh, this went on for about two and a half hours. Uh, then the uh, UFOs finally moved away, and uh, they everyone stopped firing. And the next day um, was just total confusion. The Navy insisted nothing happened, but the Army insisted that something did happen. They just didn't know what. And um, then... About a day later, the uh, war census came in and just put a clamp down on, on uh, any information about it, and the story kind of went away. But um, it's, it, once again, it's one of these situations where so, so many people saw it. And, and, and in the book, we, we quote newspaper people and military people and also law enforcement people. I mean, they think about a million people saw these things. And it's just amazing that this story isn't more well-known in the U.S., but like I say, because the war census came in and just shut everything down, uh, the, not a lot of people knew it happened even back then. Well, 
also you mentioned the Los Angeles Times, but uh, what, there was quite a few newspaper reporters on hand to, to have those sightings. That I think there well. was uh, six newspapers in Los Angeles at the time, and they all had uh, reporters out there that night. A lot of them were on the top of buildings with law enforcement people, and 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 they all saw these things, um, you know, with the naked eye or with with binoculars and. Um, there was a, at one point that the army floated a rumor that what they really were were um, uh, airliners d- disguised, uh, uh, bombers disguised as airliners uh, that were being flown out of a secret base in Mexico by the Japanese. And um, as I said before, that sounds like a really bad movie plot to me. And of course, it wasn't true. And um, then at the, when the war was over, they asked the Japanese specifically, "Did you have any aircraft over?" Los Angeles that night, and they said no. In fact, the Japanese didn't have the capability, like an aircraft carrier or something along those lines, to to get close enough to Los Angeles to launch something like that. So just what happened, you know, no one knows. There was never any official investigation, but just from that photo alone, I mean, um, it's really startling evidence that something looking like a UFO was over Los Angeles that night. And uh, that was, you know, just the the very, very tip of the iceberg with uh, some of these UFO sightings that happened during World War II. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the show the idea of the Foo Fighters, and uh, you actually recount in the book the actual incident in which Foo Fighters got their name. And I, I mean, of course, the UFO is not the rock band. Um, yeah, they, um, well, people had been seeing Foo Fighters from, uh, they just hadn't got their name yet. Um, they'd been seeing them since almost the very beginning of the war when the air war started over Europe when Britain started bombing Germany and um, lasted right out through the uh, entire European theater and also a lot in the Pacific theater, too. I have to give a a shout-out, let's say, to Keith Chester, who is a guy who wrote a book about five years ago called Strange Company, and that's that's like the Bible on Foo Fighters. He did an amazing amount of research going back into old uh, records of the 8th Air Force and British Bomber Command and the U.S. Navy to, to really come up with a lot of incidents of Foo Fighters that we had never heard about before until him so um but but uh, actually they got their name late in the war in the 1944 there was a um there was a night fighter squadron that was based in france uh, the 415 uh, night fighter squadron they flew these big kind of uh, two-engine british fighters that were on loan to the u.s and they for whatever reason this squadron saw more foo fighters than any other uh u.s or british um outfit during um, during World War II in the European theater. And they saw so many of them, they decided we should give them a name. And there was a uh, cartoon at the time um, where, um, I think it was named Smokey Stover or something like that. He was a cartoon that was in the newspapers. And, and there was a term, Foo, Foo he, his, he was a fireman, and his name, the name of his fire truck was the Foo Machine. So somehow or other they came up with Foo Fighters. And it just is just odd that the... the, the air unit that saw more Foo Fighters than any other air unit was also the one that uh, wound up uh, naming them. So they became the Foo Fighters from that point on. And it just seemed like uh, from all the different reports that you talk about in the book, uh, there was a wide variety of ships being seen and a wide variety of lights too. It wasn't just any singular type of craft that you could point your finger on and be like, okay, it was this experimental thing. You know, it, it seems like it was a lot of different Right. I mean, they, you know, the, the, um, they came in all shapes and sizes, for sure, you know, uh, all the way to um, uh, lots of uh, kind of glowing balls of light or, or uh, balls that seem like uh, that they're on fire to what they used to call unguided rockets. Uh, they just look like rockets that would trail bombers right up to, you know, your standard um, 
cigar-shaped object that so many people have reported as UFOs throughout history. Um, you know, and, and as you said, you know, a lot of people at the time um, thought that they were kind of like secret weapons. In fact, there are a lot of people even these days who think that, you know, that there were Nazi super weapons or whatever. But, you know, that, that can't be for several reasons. Uh, one of them is that, um, as I said, Keith Chester's book points out that, and we have a lot of stories in our book where, um, you know, there were a lot of Foo Fighters were seen over the Pacific um, Theater as well. And um, also there's no recorded in, in, uh, incident or um, evidence that, that Foo Fighters ever shot at any of our airplanes or shot at, you know, or, you know uh, took any offensive action against our troops on the ground. Um, after we won the war, when we went into Germany, we didn't find any huge manufacturing facility where they would be able to make these fantastic machines. And then the final, um, you know, reason why they couldn't have been Nazi superweapons is if that they had the technology to produce these weapons, why, would, why did they lose the war? So they weren't new Nazi superweapons, and I think that's just a way, you know, people keep repeating that story these days and writing books about it, but I think that's just a way of, of kind of keeping the idea of the Nazis alive. And, and you know, frankly, I think that we should... Uh, we have better things to do with our time than uh, than to do that. So, uh, sure. like everything else, um, you know, the Foo Fighters, no one knows what they are. Lots of people saw them, but uh, no one has any idea what they were. And when, when World War II was over, they just went away. Uh, I have an interesting little observation. I talked to a number of pilots that actually a- encountered them from World War II over uh, Germany and France and stuff. And uh, one of the guys that I talked to, he was flying one of the bombers, and there. Each bomber in a particular flight has various jobs, mm-hmm. and his particular one where he used to get all buzzed all the time by the Foo Fighters is his plane was the one loaded with radar. Not every plane carried radar, and they would use uh, radar to navigate themselves along the ground mm-hmm. at, and, and stuff like that to, to judge heights, distances, and, and terrain and stuff, especially at night. And he said th- they would be buzzed. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the night fighters having the most uh, amount of uh, hits, I guess, with uh, Foo Fighters because the night fighters also all flew in a radar pattern. That's right. I mean, that's, that's why so they So high-energy emission. So it would make sense, you know, why is this generating far more electronic emission? Well, you know, that, that could be because these... Uh, the the four one five that I was talking about that the the airplane they flew was a, a bow fighter and even though right. they were called night fighters it's actually a pretty large airplane and it was they're they, also equipped with radar yeah that's, that's what, how that's they fought at night correct they they all had radar in in those uh, night fighting bow fighters so you know I never heard that before but that actually kind of makes a lot of sense because if you're maybe if you're emitting lots of radar that you become a target for these things you know or you right. attract them in some way yes. Yeah. High energy emissions. Okay, right. why, why are you emitting all of this noise? So right, you know, and, and there's also a story in there uh, in 1957 where, and it's kind of a famous story now, where uh, there was a um, top secret RB-47 um, uh, electronic countermeasures bomber that was out on a um, training mission out over the Gulf of Mexico from, um, and uh, out over the Gulf of Mexico and flying over um, Louisiana and Texas, going back to its base in Oklahoma, was was uh, stalked by two, FU, two UFOs for about two hours. I mean, uh, all these all the people in the bomber saw them, and and the UFOs were circling, and really quite a uh, quite an episode. And uh, this particular bomber was just chock filled with like radar and you know ECM stuff and everything. So there might be some kind of a situation there where these things are attracted to 
uh, you know, radar emissions and so on. I never heard that before, but, you know, I really like that theory. Well, like I said, I, I, I've been investigating UFOs for like 20-something years, and uh, I got a chance to meet a number of uh, bomber pilots back in the day when a lot of them were still alive, and one of them was a, a good friend of mine, and he told me all about these encounters and what he was flying, and he made the point to tell me my plane was one of the only ones usually in the flight that had all of this radar equipment on it. Mm-hmm. They were, In other words, he was the plane that was responsible for their radar navigation. Right, like the Pathfinder. Yeah, plane. yeah, right. basically. And he he said we were the ones that were always buzzed by the Foo Fighters. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I think the, the whole idea of the Foo Fighters, and I think the idea that these, you know, extraterrestrial or future beings, however you want to look at them, were coming back and observing what we were doing uh, is intriguing. But what's even more intriguing is that they never seem to really get directly involved but there are a few cases where where they did take they did take chase uh against some of the allied forces um well in in world war ii do you mean yeah well you know uh there's there's lots of them lots of well let me let me start and say this um keith chester figured out that we only know about 10 percent of foo fighter uh reports in the european theater during world war ii and probably even less in the Pacific, because wow. the U.S. Navy has yet to release their information on Foo Fighter sightings. Can you imagine that? So there, there could be somewhere in Washington, you know, this treasure trove of Foo Fighter reports that, you know, we haven't come upon yet. Um, he, Keith also figures that only 10% were reported in the European theater, because, uh, as we were talking about earlier, you know, um, the the uh, anyone who reported these things were... Uh, you know, uh, they would have their intelligence officers. We saw reports where the intelligence officers would question the crew whether they were drunk or not, um, because you you just did not want to get sidetracked from what you were doing up there. And what you were doing up there was bombing Jim- Germany into submission. And any any idea of you know that these things were you know science fiction or from uh, you know the Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon and stuff like that. They really, really didn't want to make that connection. So, uh, so but they were definitely real because they they had made physical impacts. Uh, my buddy told me about one of his other buddies having the tail getting whacked into by one of these things. Oh yeah, that, oh. that created damage. Yeah, oh yeah, there was there was you know once again there's you know who knows what we don't know. I, I would lo- you know it's too bad that they discourage people from really giving full reports on these things. But uh, there's even the story um, that came out while we were writing the book and we were just able to get it in where. Uh, where Winston Churchill was shown a picture of a Foo Fighter that was um, tailing a, a British reconnaissance plane. And when he saw it, uh, he realized the implications of this right away. He, he right away jumped to the conclusion that this was some kind of something not of this earth, and he uh, forbid that photo to be shown for 50 years because he was sure that if people on Earth thought that it was from another world, that our civilization, civilization would crash, our religions would crash, um, so he he censored that photo for fifty years, and it's since been quote unquote lost. So we'll never see it. But you know, I mean, they were real. So many people saw them that they couldn't all be making up these stories. Sure. Um, but just what they were, what they were doing, who knows? 
All right. Well, we are talking with Mac Maloney. He's the author of UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. It's available from his website, MacMaloney.com. It's also linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. We're going to take a break now for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll also be joined by Peter Robbins, who will talk with us about some events that he has coming up. And we're going to get some crosstalk with him and Mac about the Bentwaters case, about Roswell. And then we'll talk a little bit more with Mac about some of the early cases of quote-unquote flying saucer sightings because i want to get into some of that stuff as well and we'll talk even more about some of the more modern sightings of ufos in wartime so stay tuned we will be right back with more in just a few minutes during the break if you want to go to legendtrips.com that's where you can go to purchase tickets to our slater mill event coming up on april 21st so just go to legendtrips.com all the info is right there we'll be right back with more here on spooky south coast From the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back into the show. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. We're going to get right back into the discussion about UFOs and wartime with our guest Mac Maloney in just a minute. Uh, before we do that, we do have a few things we want to let you know about. Uh, number one, and this is uh, pretty pretty important stuff, we want to uh, pass along our condolences to the friends and family of Dawn Shy. She was a, a very well-known person in the paranormal field. She worked a lot. She called herself the power publicist. Uh, she worked a lot to help people get their name out there and to get recognition for their work. Uh, and she passed away this week, so our condolences to her friends and family and to the paranormal community in general. And then also uh, prayers and thoughts go out to Aaron Houdini, who uh, we will have on the show when he's better. I, I definitely want to have him on to talk about uh, both the legacy of being a Houdini and his own work. Uh, but uh, he is uh, having some medical issues right now, so thoughts and prayers go out to him and to his family. I, I believe that he's uh, expecting, him and his wife are expecting, so we hope that everything works out well for them. Uh, then also... Uh, I do want to kind of take it into a different direction here for a second. Uh, if if you guys are out there and you're hungry, you got to go out there and help us out here with something, okay? Because uh, our friend Jason uh, owns South Coast Coney's in Middleborough. Matt, did you end up going there the other night? I did go there. And how awesome was it? It, it was pretty awesome. It was. And what did yeah. you have when you went? I had a uh, Chicago dog. Yeah? What, what was on that? I can't remember everything that was on it. There was a lot of stuff on it, and it was all good. Yep. And I had a uh, Diablo dog. Or something, something like that. The devil dog. Yeah. Oh, the one with the uh, yeah. with the habanero relish. Yeah. How was that? It wasn't as hot as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. But it was still pretty hot. Yeah. And did you have some of the uh, some of the tater tots that he does there with yep, the cherry I, I did. I went all out. I, yeah. And everything so. there's so good, and uh, and it's cheap too. But I, uh, I wanted the uh, he they make a uh, chili dog pizza. Oh really? They do, and I wanted to try it, but I don't know. My heart wasn't in it. Well, your heart would have been in you <laughs> after right. you had that, too. But Your heartburn would have been in it. <laughs> so, uh, But listen, listen. J-Rod's J a great place over there, and it's awesome food, and it's cheap. It's a great place to eat. It's a great place to take the whole family. Uh, he has magicians in there for the kids, and he does a special on Wednesday night where you can get 99-cent Coney dogs. I mean, he does all kinds of great things there, and he's a, he's a great supporter of the community, too. And, uh, and he's a big fan of Spooky South Coast. So 
he's kind of right up against it here. This is like the last week. If he can't raise the funds to stay open, you know, he's going to have to shut down, like by Wednesday. So we need everybody out there to go out to South Coast Coney's at 10 Merchants Way in Middleborough, Massachusetts, and go just chow down. Eat as many hot dogs as you can possibly. Take, take hot dogs home. You know, if you, even if you can't eat them all, buy a bunch, take them home. They reheat nicely. Uh, they're located, again, 10 Merchants Way in Middleborough. You can go to southcoastconies.com to check out the website, or you can go to my Facebook, Tim Weisberg on Facebook, and you'll find uh, we're linked up to them there as well. So hopefully we can help save a restaurant. <laughs> but if we, if we can't, then I figure we'll all pony up some cash between the three of us, and we'll, we'll at least make them an offer on the hot dog suit. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I think we could probably find some pretty good uses for that. I'm thinking, you know, next Slater Mill event, next EVP's performance. Instead of sending out Bigfoot, we'll send out the hot dog. The hot dog. All right. But, uh, and again, speaking of uh, Legend Trips events, again, legendtrips.com if you want to find out more about our Slater Mill event coming up on April 21st. Tickets are $99. And uh, we also have a special room rate if you want to stay at the Comfort Inn in Pawtucket, Rhode Island as well. So, and you can also follow Legend Trips on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. Now, before we get right back into the discussion with Mac about UFOs in wartime, I want to bring on a good friend of the program, Peter Robbins, because he's got a couple UFO-related appearances coming up that we want to talk about. And then we'll also bring him into the discussion with Mac a little bit. Peter, you, you've got some uh, some pretty big stuff happening coming up. Uh, hi, guys. How are you doing tonight? Oh, we are hi. spooktacular. How about you? Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, delighted to uh, be on for a little bit and uh, wish Mac all the best on his book. It sounds fascinating. Thank you, Peter. You bet. Um, yeah, um, a number of things coming up. Um, um, I'm actually going to be moderating uh, an extraordinary pair of speakers and then a panel discussion that follows at the end of March, actually March 31st, at a wonderful um, college in northwestern New York State. Uh, it's called Niagara County Community College. And I'll be there with my uh, good friends, uh, Dr. David Jacobs and Linda Cortile, the subject of Bud Hopkins' uh, highly respected and extraordinary book, uh, uh, Witnessed the True Story of the Brooklyn Bridge UFO Abductions. Uh, also be speaking at a, a small conference, uh, Paranormal, in Pennsylvania in April. But the two big events for me coming up over the next couple of months are um, next month for either the 20th or the 21st annual International UFO Congress, which uh, last year was held in Phoenix for the first time. For previous 19 years, it had been held in uh, uh, a small town on the uh, Arizona-Nevada border called Laughlin, uh, Nevada. And um, it was, it, well, truly the most legendary UFO-related event of the year in America, uh, the original conference ran seven days and eight nights, brought in more than 40 speakers from around the world, and usually averaged an audience of um, a 1,000 or so. Uh, the extraordinary UFO media kind of conglomerate, Open Minds, uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure, uh, subscribe to Open Minds magazine or visit their website or hear their television or radio shows. Um, they are now the sponsors, and last year they had a tremendous success bringing it to Phoenix. It's now four days long, uh, more than 20 of us as speakers, and um, I'm very proud to uh, be a presenter there next month. It runs from the 22nd to the 26th of February, and anyone that's interested in information on it or possibly attending can simply go to the Open Minds website 
and find out information there, or Google the initials, International UFO Congress, which is IUFOC 2012, and it will bring you right to uh, information on it. However, um, I guess uh, the story I'm best known for bringing to greater public attention is the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, which occurred in England in December of 1980. And a year ago, December, in other words, uh, December of 2010, on the 28th, the actual 30th anniversary of the third night's event that my co-author, Larry Warren, was involved in, um, myself and Larry, uh, witnesses Jim Penniston and John Burroughs, uh, Linda Howe and Nick Pope were involved in a conference very close to the original location where it occurred. The village, uh, the town of Woodbridge, is the closest town to the sites where these events took place. And this coming June, we will be following up with a bigger, better, and I am sure more intense and engaging conference, um, which will once again take place in Woodbridge, Suffolk. It will um, bring myself and Larry Warren and Jim and John back together, uh, along with one or two other of the original witnesses and um, a, uh, a British uh, presenter on a very another well-known case there, and Travis Walton, uh, who will be speaking in the United Kingdom for the first time in 19 years, and wow. as engaging as the Rendlesham story is, and as compelling as the information I'm sure that will be aired at the conference will be, if none of us showed up and it was just Travis, I'm sure they'd have a complete sellout. Uh, he is truly, for me, uh, one of the most extraordinary, respected, and finest people uh, in this field with tremendous courage, and um, I think he's become really a world-class spokesman for the seriousness uh, of such events. So very excited about that. For anyone, um, whether or not you'll be able to make it over from the States or any of your listeners in the U.K. or abroad, um, the information uh, to be aware of um, that for the, the conference is specifically I'm going to give you an actual phone number here and an email address. Okay. Uh, our organizer is named Gordon. Goodger, G-O-O-D-G-E-R, and you can call him directly uh, from the States at 01144-7811-021330, or his email address, which is a lot easier to remember, is info at spaceportuk.com. That's info at spaceportuk.com. My shameless plugs are now at an end. <laughs> well, you, you, we're talking about the Rendlesham Forest Conference here, and, and Mac, in reading your book, when you talk about the, the Rendlesham Forest case, it seems to me like you come away from that believing that something really extraordinary happened in that case. Um, yeah, I mean, from the uh, information I saw and um, you know read about, uh, it just seems like something very odd happened there, and in and, and, and that part of England... East Anglia, if I'm saying that right, uh, yeah, East has Anglia a past the history area. of a lot of unusual stuff happening. So um, <laughs> it's a fascinating case. I'm sure Peter knows way more about it than I do. We we touch on it um, in a chapter in the book, but um, just extraordinary. And, and, and 
especially because you know you had someone like a high officer as um, as uh, Mr. Halt who was out there seeing it for himself and recording it. Just a really fascinating story. Yeah, Mac is right. Um, in the United Kingdom, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident is far and away regarded as the best known, and I'm proud to say. Uh, with the original publication of Larry Warren's and my book, Left at East Gate, the best documented um, UFO incident, military or otherwise, in the history of the United Kingdom. And also, um, I think, fits very well into the theme of Matt's, Mac's book. Although this was not, it did not occur during a hot war, it occurred at a particularly tense time during the Cold War. And it was not, of course, just... Uh, former Colonel Halt, who was a witness, but dozens and dozens of um, airmen and security police and other Air, United States Air Force personnel, as well as key British people, uh, civilian and otherwise. And even though we are now 31 years plus in, the controversy continues. Uh, claims and counterclaims um, continue to be argued over. And... Um, it is a story that will never go away. Um, it has captured my imagination in earnest since uh, 1987. And even though our book um, took nine years to write and ten years to get into print, um, my interest and fascination in the case uh, has continued unabated since then. Well, and what, what makes it most intriguing to me is the fact that... of. Uh, you know, if these were extraterrestrial creatures or even people from the future, what it was that they were looking for mm. at that location. Yeah, well, um, you know, for me, one thing that I have learned in more than 30 years as a specialty researcher and investigative writer in this area is there are certain things that we will probably never have definitive answers on. And frankly, I tend to... Um, back away from people, at least allegorically, who uh, tell us that they do have the definitive answers. Um, I mean, again, uh, we could go off on a tangent here and what constitutes proof. For me, I'm a fairly plotting, real-world investigator, and, for example, with the help of Matt Moniz, who um, I first approached more than 20 years ago when he was working for Springborn Environmental Laboratories in Wareham, uh, Massachusetts, um, we had a soil analysis, um, which he conducted, which absolutely blew my mind. I and still have some of that soil to this yeah. day. <laughs> Hold on to it. When the NSA takes me and Larry out, you can buy a new house <laughs> with that stuff. Um, the fact is that when you do this work, a lot of it, and I'm sure you know people in other paranormal areas of study may have, have similar opinions, um, although it's an engaging fascinating, you know, pair of areas of study, um, there can be pretty dry times, and, you know, you're just trying to sort out the facts and make sense of allegations or alleged evidences, and this really took the top off of things. Um, triangulation is the name of the game when you're doing serious investigation, and I don't necessarily mean three points on the compass. I mean, in this case, witness identifies this exact spot as where he was when Machine of Undetermined Origin appears. Area has an area, uh, area the area has a uh, pre-existing uh, history of paranormal activity and, and UFO activity, as, as Mac noted. And um, 
photographically it didn't look right. And then the analysis, to kind of cut to the chase, uh, showed that, number one, um, seeds that were germinated in um, the control samples of the soil that we took um, were perfectly normal. Um, ones from the affected sample took longer to grow and ultimately were mutated strains. Um, there was an excess of four times the amount of small metallic particles like pieces of sand that one would expect to find in the affected area, which really only suggested to us that a very powerful electromagnetic force had exerted itself there. Uh, and for me, the most shocking and um, almost theatrical results was that the sand in the affected area, as opposed to the surrounding area, was no longer actually sand. It was on its way to being glass, something that Matt was not able to reproduce in the laboratory. Now, this is one small tangent of a nine-year investigation in a book that runs 540 pages, but um, it is a hell of a story and one that I'm particularly glad that Mac has touched on because like any good book in the field that introduces readers to yet another important case or another aspect will take some readers off on that direction and have them educating themselves more uh, about it. And hopefully even maybe some of your listeners can join us uh, in Suffolk, East Anglia um, this June. Sure. And, and uh, of course, if anybody wants to find out more, you can pick up uh, Peter's book, Left at East Gate. And you can also check out the episode that we did of Spooky South Coast where we devoted the entire show to the Rendlesham Forest case. And we, we actually played Colonel Halt's tape in its entirety. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's there if you want to go back into the archives and listen to that either on our website or through iTunes or however you get podcasts. But uh, before we let you go, Peter, mm -hmm. Mac, I was reading in your book about a, a particular case from 1947 that's, you know, kind of famous, the Roswell case. <laughs> And uh, I, I noticed that uh, you come to some pretty interesting conclusions. Now, we've talked about Roswell here quite a bit in the past. We've had our Roswell Smackdown show where we had a, a pro and con of uh, debate going back and forth. We've uh, talked to Jesse Marcel Jr. You know, we've, we've covered this uh, story from a lot of different angles, but I've, your, your angle on it kind of interests me a little bit because it seems like you don't really think anything extraterrestrial went on. Well, um, no, I don't. I guess I'm... Might be in the minority uh, on this, but um, I'll just tell you really quickly uh, a few reasons why. First of all, um, you know we we touch on it briefly in the book, uh, but I've always been uh, you know a fan of the whole uh, Roswell incident and read a lot about it. Um, you know, going back twenty years ago. In fact, at one point, uh, some group was going to actually do an archaeological dig on the site. Uh, where the debris was found, and uh, they were looking for volunteers, and I was I was going to volunteer to go down there to uh, help out in that. I don't think they ever did that, but someone should maybe do that at some point. But it's but then, done. just as I kind of you know looked into it more, and and uh, I saw um, photographs of um, of what uh, the the, um, the the tail of the spy balloons that they were using at the time uh, laid out next to. Uh, pictures of the debris, and um, yeah, they just match up. Uh, you know, they just match up. And uh, to me, it looks like those photos are basically photos uh, from the debris of a, of a spy balloon that somehow crashed. Um, uh, another um, reason that I think this way is, as I said before, I uh, since I was a little kid, I would read every UFO book that I could get my hands on. And um, you know, I grew up in the late fifties and sixties. 
And there was no mention of Roswell in any of these books. It, it just kind of came back to life in the late 70s and uh, kind of exploded from there. And, um, and, and then just, you know, in some of the um, books that are out there now, it, it seems like, you know, they're, they're claiming that, you know, dozens or a dozen UFOs crashed and there were, you know, dozens of bodies and so on and so forth. And, you know, just, as I said before, it just seems like be too, too many moving parts of the story. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the U.S. or some other country hasn't recovered crash disks from other locations and, you know, and who knows. But uh, I really just don't think anything happened at Roswell. I'd, I'd like to be convinced otherwise, but I just don't think anything did. Well, first, you've got a couple of things that are incorrect. Number one, the, if you're referring to the photographs with Jesse Marcel and in, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, he was forced to take pictures with that stage debris. The debris was actually in the office with the press before uh, Marcel actually even departed the plane with the original uh, debris. And this comes directly from his son as well as several other people that inter- interviewed him directly. Um, not only that, uh, there are several other people that also handled the uh, material back and forth off the plane before, like I said, the, that those pictures were even taken. So we know that the pictures that you're talking about are staged. That's, that's no if, that's no and, that's no but. That is the, a definite a staged event. There's also been uh, a, a, over 100 different people that have handled the debris that have come across in uh, written statements about what they've seen. So, And it was definitely not a balloon. I can't see how a balloon that is on the average of about 40 to 50 uh, feet maximum in diameter can cause a debris field uh, roughly 700 feet long by... Uh, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, almost 700 feet long and a uh, couple hundred feet wide and make furrows because a, a lighter-than-air aircraft does not make a dent in the ground. Yeah, I would have to, um, first, Matthew is correct, and this is an area of study that I had not ventured into early on like a lot of people in the field. Uh, you know, it's the preeminent case. I, I knew about it, but... It really wasn't until 2007 that I really began my own investigation, maybe in the spirit that, you know, Mac has looked into some of the cases that um, are in his book. And I have to tell you, um, I, I was completely convinced. I should also say here that for more than three years, um, I worked for the city of Roswell as a consultant and advisor on walking that line between um, responsible education, public relations, as well as um, tourism, quite simply. Um, Also, you should be aware that, in fact, the Sci-Fi Channel, I'm trying to remember now, maybe six years ago, did conduct a a major uh, archaeological dig out there, and they spent well into the six figures doing it, and got some very impressive results. It resulted in a, uh, a feature-length documentary, which you should definitely watch, as well as a companion book that was um, put together in a very unsensational manner. For me, um, you know, one looks for all kinds of proofs. And uh, a big break came, this is now over 10 years ago, you may remember the date, Matt, but a press photographer who was working for the Air Force right at that time in the summer of 1947 
took a photograph of General Roger Rainey, who was instrumental in the cover-up, and there's no question about that. And at the time, you know, it's an interesting photograph. It was probably taken with one of those great old-fashioned Graflex cameras that uh, newspaper photographers used in the 1940s, which have extraordinarily high resolution. However, the technology to enlarge the photograph properly to the degree where there was even a chance of seeing what was apparently written on the cablegram that General Ramey was holding did not come for uh, several more decades. And you know what, Matt, now that I'm thinking about it, I think the story broke when I was running um, UFOCity.com, and we closed that down in '04. Right. But let me tell you, this for me was one of the breakthrough moments in just getting very excited about good old-fashioned investigation aided by technology because you can see, and this is an undoctored close-up of that cable in this general's hand taken, I don't know, 48, 72 hours later, you see the words. There's obviously a certain, you know, he's holding it not straight out for you to see it. He's holding it uh, at somewhat of an angle. But you can see words um, like, saucer and um, crash and a number of other bodies. Absolutely. Um, Then there's another aspect of this, which is witness statements. Now, when I say witness statements relative to Roswell, I'm discussing um, individuals who have come forward or made themselves available. For more than 25 years now, the Fund for UFO Research did us all a tremendous service more than 20 years ago and sent camera team, a documentary team down to Roswell, where they videotaped something like 60 or 70 people who were around at that time. Now, here's the deal. Absolutely none of them wanted a penny in payment. None of them wanted to be famous or be on television. None of them wanted to or did write a book. There were witness statements from the widows of men who were directly involved who made deathbed testimonies. And if you want to see this all compiled in a way that I feel is about as undeniable that not only did something happen, but in fact what is purported to have happened did happen, Um, there's a lot of good literature on it and also a lot of crap. But I would advise anybody interested in trying to get behind the human aspect of it to pick up or find uh, a book called Witness to Roswell written by Tom Carey and Don Schmidt. It is the ultimate compendium of individuals and their stories firsthand. And I've met a few of these men. Two of them are gone now that I've met, and they were well in their 80s when I did meet them. But they were involved. They had no axe to grind. They loved their country. They were not thrilled about breaking, ultimately, their national security oath of 1947, But in fact, the major contributing factor was that they watched on television and saw other men who had done it and wanted to make their peace with this before they passed on, quite simply. Um, There is physical evidence that purports to be, you know, metal from the craft. Um, For me, it's fascinating, but, you know, um, I guess we can't say it's definitive. There is a tremendous backlog of military documents, but... Um, I would respectfully suggest that you study this more. And if you have an opportunity, visit Roswell.
speak to people there. Go to the museum. Um, look into picking up a copy of this book. And um, I think that you will see that there is not just compelling evidence, but enough evidence that one can look to this story as authentic um, beyond any reasonable doubt. Again, that is my point of view, but I, I'm, I think it's an informed and educated point of view. Well, uh, we're going to take a break, Peter, so we, we thank you for joining us. But you bet. Before we do, I'm going to just say, uh, Mac, my mind was made up on the Roswell incident when we had Commander Sanicito on the show, <laughs> the actual Roswell alien who crashed and was then reincarnated. Oh, yeah, I just got a headache in my eye. <laughs> well, right. uh, there's one, one thing we forgot to mention about, you know, Roswell was actually not mentioned itself, but the crash and stuff was mentioned in Easy Rider which was uh, done in the 60s, talking about the crash and the bodies being recovered in the UFO. If anybody wants to go back and look at the film, it's in there. That constitutes proof as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you get Jack Nicholson backing you up, right? Thanks so right, much, and, Peter. Uh, my pleasure, guys, and uh, have a great evening, and thank you for having me on the show. Thanks. Have a good one. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. bye-bye. We will be right back talking more about UFOs in wartime with Mac Maloney and and Mac, I, I want to talk some more about 1947 and some of the strange goings on then, and then we'll talk about some more modern cases coming up. But if anybody has any questions for Mac uh, or any questions about UFOs and wartime before the show is out, the numbers to call are 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And we'll be right back with more here on What's the Name of the Show? Spooky South Coast. I could have said it a few more times. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. Matt Costa, you are an enabler, sir. Enabler? Every time you play that, you buy David Crosby a new liver. (laughs) And you allow him to continue his partying ways. All right, welcome back to the show uh, where we talk about the paranormal and we occasionally poke fun at aging rock stars as well. That's what we do. Don't tell Gary Patterson I said that because then he won't come back (laughs) on the show. But uh, we are talking with Mac Maloney about his book, UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. And there's some things in here that I didn't know, lots of things that I didn't know. And uh, so I definitely recommend picking it up. You can pick it up pretty much anywhere books are sold, right, Mac? Right. It's uh, published by uh, Penguin Books, and it's at um, you know, really every bookstore uh, across the country. But you know, going on to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, my publisher wants me to mention them too, or my website. You can get it. Um, you know, online at a lot of different places. And, of course, you can go to MacMaloney.com to find out all the information about not only this book, but all of Mac's other books as well. Uh, is there going to be more nonfiction stuff coming down the pike? Or are you going to go back to the uh, to the fiction stuff? Well, I'm going to go back to the fiction 
stuff for a little while. In fact, I got another book coming out um, on Monday. Uh, I do a series called The Pirate Hunters about special ops um, soldiers going after the Somali pirates. And um, the third book in that series is coming out on Monday. And then I uh, just got to uh, kind of wind down a little bit from this and then uh, talk to my uh, publisher to see, um, you know, if we want to do another UFO book or do something, maybe another paranormal book, maybe not necessarily UFOs, but we'll see soon. Well, just keep us up to date with uh, everything that you're working on. You bet. And uh, I want to take it back to 1947 for a minute because uh, one of the, the cases that, you know, we hear about all the time is the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which is supposedly the birth of the term flying saucer. Uh, but there's some interesting connotations between Kenneth Arnold and another sighting that happened a few days before his sighting. Right. Um, that's the Maury Island incident. And um, it's really this, this probably the strangest story in the book, and I'll, I'll try to give a short version of it. Um, what happened was, um, um, as you say, a few days before Kenneth Arnold saw his uh, you know, flying saucers over uh, Mount Rainier. And from that incident uh, came the term flying saucers. A few days before that happened, there was an incident uh, off of Tacoma, um, Washington, uh, in which a, uh, a gentleman named Dow, D-A-H-L, was out in a boat with several people and, um, in, in Tacoma Bay. And what they were doing was they were retrieving uh, trees that had been cut down by the lumbering companies up there, uh, they would. Some of them would get away and get in the water, and they would retrieve them, and bring them back to the uh, to the lumber uh, company. It's a lot of uh, uh, well, lumber companies up in Tacoma. So anyway, um, they saw these uh, five UFOs suddenly, uh, saucer-shaped craft, suddenly come uh, almost right down on top of them. One of them seemed to be uh, in some kind of distress. The other UFOs kind of got um, surrounded it, and for want of a better word, sent a charge to it. Um, and it seemed to regain its uh, capabilities, and, and in doing so, it expelled this uh, stuff that they called slag. And slag is actually the byproduct of steelmaking, but there's no steelmaking up in this part of the country. But anyway, these people are on this boat, and they're seeing this, and they beach the boat on Maury Island, and they take cover while all this uh, strange stuff is going on. And uh, then the UFOs uh, just take off in a blink of an eye, and they're gone. So uh, Mr. Dow and his crew... Uh, retrieved some of the slag, went back to Tacoma, and um, vowed not to say anything to anyone about this. Um, the next day, uh, a gentleman came and uh, to Dow's house, and uh, he was dressed in black, as it turns out, and uh, he uh, uh, kind of uh, suggested he was an insurance salesman, uh, invited Dow out to breakfast. They went out to breakfast, and as soon as they started this little meeting, the um, man in black uh, proceeded to tell Dow everything that had happened to him the day before on Maury Island, this guy knew everything that had happened, and he basically threatened Dow to keep his mouth shut or uh, bad luck would come to him and his family. Uh, later on that day, uh, Dow decided uh, not to keep his mouth shut, and he told the whole story to his boss, uh, a gentleman named Fred Chrisman. And you got to remember that name because it's important later on in the story. And Chrisman goes out to Maury Island, and he claims he saw flying saucers out there, too. So shortly after that, now this is all happened before the Kenneth Arnold sighting happened. Uh, then the Kenneth Arnold sighting happens, and all of a sudden, people see him flying saucers everywhere. Um, Chrisman and Dow get a hold of a magazine editor in Chicago, and, he, and this guy is interested in doing a story on this. And he's going to send a reporter out to Tacoma to write the story. And who does the reporter turn out to be but Kenneth Arnold? Now, Kenneth Arnold wasn't a, re, a, re, a journalist of at all. He was an independent businessman, but all of a sudden, he's thrown in the middle of this flying saucer controversy. So he goes out. 
he gets into a hotel room with Chris Minendal and starts to interview them. As this interview is taking place, the phone rings, and it's a newspaper reporter from a Tacoma uh, newspaper close by, and he's saying, I don't know who you people are, but or what you're doing, but I have someone on the other line who's telling me everything that you are saying inside this ho- your hotel room. So now Arnold and Chris Menendow search the hotel room for bugs and so on, listening devices, can't find anything. Uh, this completely freaks them out. They decide to get the military involved. The military sends up two officers from a air base in California, two intelligence officers fly up at a B-25 um, uh, airplane. They land in Tacoma. Now they join them the next day in this hotel room. Uh, the Crispin and Dow give them a the whole story. They give them a sample of this slag material. The uh, Air Force uh, officers get back on their plane to fly back to California. Uh, Thirty minutes later, they're dead. Uh, their plane crash, very close to where Kenneth Arnold saw his flying saucers. Now, when Kenneth Arnold finds this out, he decides, I've had enough of this. So he calls the um, magazine in Chicago and said, I'm off, the, I'm off the case. I don't want to do this anymore. He gets in his plane, and his plane almost crashes. And it's determined later on that maybe something w- uh, was had been um, tampered with in his engine. Uh, the FBI got involved. Um, we saw cables between uh, Hoover and his FBI agents here at the time who said that, you know, the people involved in this, this is not a hoax. They, they uh, swear that this happened. A lot of people started to say it was a hoax. People say if you really look at this, and you kind of uh, strip away the top layer of it, what it looks like is a real is a uh, has all the signs of a counterintelligence operation to kind of dispel the notions of UFOs. Um, it's a very very strange case, and no one ever figured out exactly what happened. But the interesting thing about Fred Chrisman, the boss, is that later on he was called before a congressional committee uh, investigating investigating the JFK assassination because uh, in the JFK assassination, three quote unquote hobos were found close to the assassination site up on the railroad tracks, and one of them had Fred Crispin's name and number in his pocket. What all this means, no one has ever been able to figure it out, but for sure it's one of the strangest cases in all of UFO history. Absolutely, and it certainly does tie in the idea of a CIA connection. Well, yeah. left out the one important, well, I wouldn't call it important, one interesting fact, the dog getting killed by the and the dog, Yeah, the dog was killed during this, right? And they never figured out what this slag was either. Actually, they did. I know they, some people that did. What was it? It's a, a aluminum. Now, what's interesting is there's been several other cases where this slag aluminum has been seen being ejected from uh, craft. As a matter of fact, there are several samples of it that have been analyzed by a number of people. Yeah, just a strange story. Very strange story. Oh, the whole Maury Island. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. There, there's been actually a couple of sightings that happened there afterwards. Well. Uh, well, uh, like I said, really, uh, uh, very, you know, I had, I had heard about it before, and then, um, uh, you know, we we got into it a little bit more uh, when we were researching the book, but um, just, a, just a weird story, weird kind of chilling story. And, of course, we go from, uh, you know, a time, we're talking about World War One, World War Two, when a lot of these sightings were reported uh, from uh, the pilots to their superiors, and even then, we started to see kind of the collapse come down. We kind of see the choking out of these stories a little bit. But now you move into this era of the 50s, the 60s, and into the 70s where you know we're, we're actually seeing some serious investigation into UFOs. But how serious were they in trying to find the answers? Uh, well, it turned out not, not very serious at all, or at least not uh, to the public eye. Uh, when um, uh, in 1947-48, the, the Air Force uh, actually... Uh, opened up, well, it was um, 
they gave the, the job of finding out whether UFOs were real or not to um, uh, part of the UFOs called the ATIC. And they, they were scientists and engineers, and um, they were given about six months to look into it and to come back with a report on whether UFOs were quote-unquote real. Now, they did finally come up with this report, and their, and, and their conclusion was, yes, they are real. When people see UFOs, they're not hallucinating. They're not, it's not a hoax. People actually see things, and they're not U.S.-made, and they're not Russian-made, so what are they? But, you know, make a long story short, the Pentagon basically said to them, well, that's not the conclusion we wanted you to come to. Right. So they sent them away and said, do another study. And when that second study came back, and, and I'm kind of constricting events here a little bit, when that second study came back, basically what they said was, uh, no, there's nothing to it. And the Air Force came out with the famous uh, quote that, you know, all UFO sightings are either uh, the work of people who are delusional or hoaxes or religious fanatics and crackpots. And... Uh, it was that point, you know, it was that point that if had, had the Air Force, you know, had the courage to really do a scientific study on what UFOs were, it would have been then, and, and, and history would have been changed. But now, you know, they chose to cover it up then, and the cover-up, uh, you know, continues today. Uh, what really kind of uh, set their plans awry, though, was then uh, six months later, after all this happened, the Korean War started. And all of a sudden, you have all these um, high-tech jet fighters flying over Korea, kind of a small country, uh, relatively speaking. A lot of these airplanes have radar in them. you got radar on the ground, radar in ships offshore. So, uh, and lots of UFOs were spotted during the Korean War. So now the Air Force, at the very least, is in a position of saying that, you know, their pilots are, what, crackpots, hoaxers, uh, you know, religious fanatics? They couldn't do that. So every UFO sighting that was uh, reported by their uh, pilots during the Korean War, they had to come up with these you know, crazy explanations from, like, weather balloons and flares and so on and so forth. But a lot of people think that because so many UFOs were sighted over Korea, that that's why Project Blue Book was started. And even though it has its critics, Project Blue Book probably did more uh, uh, good work than bad work, um, you know, as far as the Air Force was concerned, investigating UFOs uh, through the 50s and into the 60s. Didn't, didn't do a lot of work, but... They did do some interesting stuff. So, um, you know, once again, the Air Force, by covering it up, actually painted themselves into a corner. And, you know, in, in, in many ways, they're still painted into that corner today. Well, part of that is due to the – well, the the first study you were talking about where they came out, it, it's something unknown. It's called Project Sign. Mm-hmm. Then the second one that where they wanted the negative answer was called Project Grudge. Grudge, right, yeah. And then they went on with uh, Project Blue Book, which eventually – uh, concluded that there was no uh, significant or uh, interest uh, in terms of national security. Right. right. Uh, even though they left out 114 cases that they didn't want to answer. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they've continued to accept reports but haven't followed up on them in any official capacity since the close of Blue Book. And you also have... Another reason being the Condon report, which actually had its results written before the study even started, but that's not... That's a whole different show. Yeah. Well, we have about three minutes left in this show, Mac, but uh, before we let you go, we wanna, I want to ask you, what's, what's one of the most profound, more recent UFO sightings in you know, the current war that we're engaged with, this war on terror? Well, um, the book goes until uh, the end of the first Gulf War, and we include some stories in there where... Uh, people, uh, you know, we, we kept coming upon a story that a UFO was shot down during the first Gulf War. 
that um, in between the first and second uh, Gulf War, that uh, there's a story that uh, Saddam's forces shot down a UFO, reverse engineered it, and created a super weapon, and that's what we were really looking for when wow. we invaded Iraq. Wow. Um, you know, things of that nature. Uh, I've seen videotapes of Marines on night duty in, in Iraq, this Iraq war, uh, where they're picking up UFOs and their night vision equipment. Um, I've talked to people who, I know some people who work with the U.S. intelligence agencies that say that, you know, this stuff is going on all the time over the Persian Gulf and in Afghanistan. And, and frankly, um, in, our, in, in our skies, too, uh, there's been uh, hundreds of UFO intercepts since 9-11, uh, only because we send up fighters now to check anything coming into our airspace. Before 9-11, you didn't do that, but now you have to. And as a result of a lot of these jets being scrambled, they're seeing a lot more UFO, having a lot more UFO sightings. And, of course, you know, you don't hear about that stuff. So um, there's, there's all kinds of activity going on. And if, and if this, our theory holds that UFOs are seen more in wartime or when we're preparing to, for war, then that just means that there's probably a whole lot of sightings from the Iraq and Afghan war that we'll hear about at some point. And I think it'll come out in, uh, in the sequel. <laughs> well, we'll see. All right, the book is called UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. The author is Mac Maloney, and you can go to his website, macmaloney.com, to find out more and to follow along. And, and I know that Mac's got uh, lots of other interviews planned as well. So, But, Mac, we'd love to have you come back on in the future and talk some more about this with oh, us. I would love to do it. Thanks very much for having me. All right, we'll be in touch and Thanks. stay in touch with us. Thank you. All right, have a great night. Thanks. All right. Again, that was Mac Maloney. The book is called UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know. I highly recommend it. I want to get a copy. It's a great book. You can take this one home and read it with you if you want. Oh, Just cool. make sure I get it back so I can keep it on our bookshelf. <laughs> no I problem. Have, I, my, my office at home is dominated by a bookshelf of all the uh, books from all of our past guests so that we have them readily accessible. And uh, who knows, someday when, when, uh, when we all croak, they can start the spooky South Coast Memorial Library out of it. <laughs> So, uh, again, just real quickly, I just want to remind everybody of a few things. Uh, of course, you can always hear Spooky South Coast while on the go at Stitcher Radio. It's a free news and talk mobile application. The latest episode is always available for you with no syncing needed and no memory wasted. It's available for your iPhone, your Palm Pre, Android phones, or your BlackBerry. Just go to Stitcher.com or check out the App Store for whoever your mobile phone operating system is, right? That's what it would be, the operating system. How's the archive update coming, Matt Cossine? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Slowly. Okay, because I, I get some emails from people, and I try to tell them to just go to iTunes. It's always – we now make sure that before we leave here, we up, upload the show Apple, to iTunes. Apple is way better than us. Yeah, they are. Yeah, everything. But uh, I have some ideas we'll talk about. We'll have a meeting, you, me, and Chris. And I have some ideas of maybe how we can make it simpler uh, for idiots like me to be able to upload things to the site. Remember the old blog? That worked out well. <laughs> it was easy for me, although it looks much cooler now. At least I could handle that. But uh, we'll, you know, we'll get them up there. But if not, iTunes. That's the place to go. They're free. doesn't cost anything to get them off iTunes. And uh, you can also listen to them right on iTunes, too. You don't have to download them if you don't want to. And, of course, Stitcher is another great way. No downloading with Stitcher either. You can listen to them that way as well. And uh, one more time, I just want to tell you more about the Slater Mill event, the graveyard shift at Slater Mill event. It's coming up on April 21st. It's going to be from 6 p.m. until 2 a.m. at the Slater Mill Museum in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Now, it's going to be just like all of our other Legend Trips events where you get dinner, you get lectures, you get a Q&A with the speakers, you get to hang out with the speakers, you get to investigate alongside the speakers. And we do it a little bit different than some of these other events that you might have been to. We have a, a pretty good structure that works really well, and it keeps the group small, and it keeps the investigation moving all along. 
Tickets are $99, and we also have a special rate if you want to stay at the Comfort Inn just down the street from the Slater Mill. You can get the room for $79 a night, as long as you mention the special code that's on the Legend Trips website. So it's a, just a great event. I'm excited for it because I haven't investigated there yet. And uh, we're going to have Keith and Carl Johnson along, Tiffany Rice, Pam Padalano. We're going to have myself, Moniz, Andrew Lake, Matt Cossie. You can come too if you don't have to come and run the show. Or come come for the dinner and then go run the show. Free eats. It's worth driving to Pawtucket for free eats, isn't it? It is. It is. There you go. All right. Well, uh, so again, legendtrips.com is the website. It's also linked up on the front page of spookysouthcoast.com as well. We'll be back next week. Uh, I'm not going to the Super Bowl, sadly. So we'll be back next week, and uh, we will have our guest, uh, Deanna Kelly Saeed, to talk about her book, Paranormal Obsession. We'll talk about some of her new works that are out there as well. It's going to be a, a good night where, you know how we like to gripe sometimes about what the paranormal, quote-unquote, media is doing to the field of paranormal research? Well, next week we're going to get into all that and more. Uh, with Deanna Saeed. So you want to definitely come back for that show. We'll be here. Until then, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Chris Balzano, stay spooktacular. <laughs>